Okay, so here we are in part six. Um, so uh, what we're going to learn today. So uh, we're in Genesis chapter two. We're going to see uh, God creates Adam. God creates the Garden of Eden. And God puts Adam to work. So that's our uh, basic outline for today. Uh, first, we'll do a little bit of review of what we did last time. So last time we took a, uh, a large-scale view of uh, Genesis chapter 2. Um, we talked about, uh, we're talking about uh, in, the, uh, in the, the larger view of why we're, why we're looking in particular at this passage of Scripture from Genesis 1 to 11 is it sets the foundation for a biblical worldview. So all, everybody has a worldview, and all worldviews answer some basic questions about life, about who am I, where do I come from, who's in charge, who's uh, got the authority to make rules, how should I live my life, what are those rules, and what happens when I die, the future eschatology. So uh, the foundation for the answers to these questions from a biblical worldview is laid down in Genesis 1 to 11. Unless you get this foundation correct, there's no way to properly see the world. You won't be able to understand the world as it really is. And so we've talked about the fact that when we're interacting with our unbelieving friends and coworkers and family members and neighbors, if they don't understand who they are as a person created in the image of God, it's almost impossible to explain to them the gospel. They can't understand it. Um, and so we need to be able to understand, we need to be able to explain these basic, the answers to these basic worldview questions from a biblical perspective just to be able to properly present the gospel. So last time we talked about uh, the, uh, some of the things that are in Genesis chapter 2 and some of the difficulties that um, sometimes arise. Uh, one of those we talked about is the significance of the seventh day. And so uh, if you look at uh, a seven-day week, seven-day week is universal. It's in all cultures. Uh, we go back through time and we see everybody's always used a seven-day week. Well, why is that? Uh, every, one, every other one of our time markers, days, months, and years, have some sort of an astronomical phenomenon that determines those things. A day is one rotation around the Earth's axis. A year is one trip of the Earth around, rotating around the sun. A month is tied to the lunar schedule from uh, um, one new moon to another new moon. The seasons are determined by the tilt of the Earth's axis, the the solstices and the equinoxes that are determined by the 23.5 degree tilt. But there is nothing in astronomy that dictates a seven-day week. So where did that come from and why is it universal? Well, of course, it's, we, we know where it comes from. It comes from creation week. That's why there's a seven-day week in every single culture everywhere in the world. And one of the best ways to illustrate that is to show the one time we know from history where somebody tried to change it. And that was the French Revolution in 1793. The French government very explicitly wanted to do away with anything that was based on the Bible or Christianity. And so they tried to implement, by government fiat, a 10-day work week. They actually did. They called it the French Revolutionary Calendar, and they implemented a 10-day work week. And it was a huge, embarrassing failure. Um, there were many, many problems, but uh, the, the primary one was the French workers were being required to work nine days and then get one day off. 
and it led to severe overworking and severe depression uh, generally among the population. Um, and so it appears, not only appears, it really is that we're hardwired for seven day week. And so we also talked about uh, the passage in Hebrews chapter 4 um, and how there is a spiritual parallel that the Bible draws a spiritual parallel between uh, the Sabbath rest and uh, a spiritual application of Sabbath rest. And so we went through this quote from John MacArthur and his uh, commentary on Hebrews, the rest promised to those who believe is my rest, as it says in Hebrews, that is God's rest. Uh, he rested from his work of creation, and the rest that he gives us in Christ are not the rest brought on by weariness or the rest of inactivity, but are the rest of finished work. His works were finished from the foundation of the world, it says in Hebrews chapter 4. God has finished his work, God has done it all, and for anyone who wants to enter into his finished work and to share in his rest, it is available by faith. Uh, when God had finished creation, he said, uh, briefly paraphrasing Genesis 2, it's done, I've made a wonderful world for man and woman, I've given them everything earthly they need, including each other, for a complete and beautiful and satisfying life. Even more importantly, they have perfect, unbroken, unmarred fellowship with me. I can now rest, and they can rest in me. And so that's a quote from John MacArthur from his commentary on Hebrews chapter 4, which is a spiritual application of this concept of Sabbath rest. So we talked about that. And so if we, if we start from God's word, we can clearly see that the seven-day week was established by God on the pattern of the creation week. Yes, go ahead. Uh, quite a few of them do. And the... Um, the, the true answer, of course, is that they're all copies of the original account, which is in Genesis. Uh, and the same thing with flood accounts. When we get to uh, Genesis chapter uh, 6 through 8, and we see the account of the flood, I'll go through the fact that there are flood accounts from civilizations all over the world. And I'll show you a, a, a giant chart with the different elements of those flood legends that are similar to the account in Genesis, but they're different, they're corrupted. And so it, it looks like there was an original account, like the one in Genesis, and then there are corrupted accounts that have spread out along with the diaspora from the Tower of Babel. Um, and it's the same thing with the creation account. Uh, you, you have creation accounts from the ancient Near East that are similar in some ways to the Genesis account, but they're corrupted. Um, this is what we have in the Bible. We have this uh, seven-day week. Of course, we have uh, God in Genesis chapter 20 when he institutes the, uh, the Sabbath, um, or he talks about the Sabbath in the Ten Commandments. Uh, he clearly lays out a seven-day week and says very specifically in Exodus chapter 20 that it's based on the... Um, the creation week. That's that's how he. Uh, that's what he founded it on. So uh, the other thing, major thing we talked about was that the seventh day was 24 hours, like the first six days. But there are those within the Christian community who will try to say, well, the seventh day, because it doesn't have evening and morning at the end of it, therefore it never ended, and we're still living in the seventh day. It goes on forever. Um, that, that interpretation um, misunderstands the use of the phrase within the rest of creation week. And we talked about this last time, that the first six, six days have a specific structure. To each one of the six days, God said something, and let there be something. There, then there was something. Uh, God saw that it was good, and there was evening and morning. So there's a structure to the, each of those six days. 
And all of those things are missing in the seventh day because it's not a day of creation. Uh, it's a day of rest. It's different. Uh, yes, go ahead. I, I wouldn't say that there's a specific denomination that uh, particularly believes that. And it uh, usually has to do with uh, trying to find some way to make the creation account uh, different, not, not a historical record, a simple historical record, to allegorize it. And this is one of the methods used to allegorize the creation account, to say, well, that day seven there, it doesn't have evening and morning, therefore it goes on forever, therefore that is definitely not a day, and so therefore we can't, we, we won't say that the other days are a day either, because we have an example now of a day that's not a day. So these are unbelievers. Well, I wouldn't say that they're unbelievers, because there are, um, I keep bringing up a, a man named William Lane Craig. William Lane Craig, and, and the reason I bring him up is because he's so orthodox and so good in so many areas. Uh, but he's not good on the area of the creation account. And he's one of those that pushes this idea, hey, look, it's uh, the seventh day never ended. Um, and, and I wouldn't say that William Lane Craig is not a believer. Um, I think that's too far to go. Uh, so I think there are believers who are confused about this. And there are, in fact, many people that I have known over the years that are staunch defenders of a six-day creation in recent, uh, recent six-day creation that started out as long-age believers after their conversion. They, were, they, they believed in an ancient earth when they were unbelievers, then they were converted to Christ. They still believed in ancient earth. They studied, they studied, they studied, and they changed their mind after studying. Well, I don't think that they were not believers for all that time before they came to this understanding that, they, that, that this is a straightforward account of creation. So, no, I wouldn't put it that way. I wouldn't say that somebody that it has this wrong is an unbeliever, necessarily. Uh, that's, and that's my opinion. Uh, I don't know how uh, Pastor no, Gabe feels. Okay, uh, yeah, so I think we need to be careful there about who we, uh, we put out of the church. Um, it's, not, uh, it's not our church. It's Christ's church. And so, it, well, I'm sorry, I, and I didn't mean to accuse you of doing that. I'm just a- answering the question to make sure that people understand that when we have a disagreement about the meaning of Scripture, it does not necessarily mean that the person we disagree with w- were we need to excommunicate them. Yeah. yeah. Just add one quick thing. Uh, as believers, we have an amazing capacity for inconsistency. Uh, so we can affirm the gospel and the essential tenets of the gospel while uh, believing other things which, if they were led to their logical conclusion, would force us to deny the gospel. But by God's grace, we are able to be inconsistent in both affirming essential gospel truths while also holding on to unbiblical ideas. And you can look at all different aspects, almost all different aspects of systematic theology or biblical theology and find disagreements. I mean, that's why we have so many denominations because we have those who want to baptize infants and those who don't. And, you know, there's uh, differences in the, of the view of the sovereignty of God or the nature of man. Free, you know, there's so many different areas, the, the role of the Holy Spirit, so on and so forth, where we would say, no, you're wrong. <laughs> but we couldn't 
say you're an unbeliever because they're still holding on to you. And they would say the same to us. Maybe there's something that we have off. Um, but, uh, you know, as, as we all uh, do, we have to find our confidence. So, our, so to, just to circle back, so our goal is to study Scripture and apply sound principles of biblical hermeneutics and try to understand through the, uh, the leading of the Holy Spirit what God's truth is being communicated in his word. And so that's what we're, um, we're trying to do. And, and so as, as Gabe pointed out, we, people have, have this, we have a remarkable inconsistency with, within the church. Uh, okay, so we talked about that, and then uh, there's a Toledot heading, of course, at uh, um, Genesis 2-4. Uh, Toledot means what came forth from, and uh, there's a number of Toledots. Uh, it's a structure, uh, the structure of the book of Genesis, as I mentioned before. Uh, many times it's translated as these are the generations of, or the descendants of, but the very first Toledot doesn't have a person attached to it. It's the Toledot of heaven and earth. Um, and so it's what came forth from the heavens and earth, and uh, many of the English Bibles uh, translated as the account. These are this is the account of the heavens and the earth. But it's that word toledot, same word toledot that we have all throughout Genesis. It's right there in Genesis two four. It's the heading of a new section of scripture. Uh, what came forth from the heavens and earth. Uh, we, the, the other major thing we talked about was Genesis chapter two is not another creation story, and the reasons why. Uh, it's not another creation story. Uh, there's the particular issue that many people have is it, it seems like the order is different or it's out of order in Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 1, you have trees and then animals and then people. Genesis chapter, chapter 2, you have the story of the creation of Adam, and then you have trees and then you have animals. What's going on here? That Genesis chapter 2 must be another creation story because it's out of order. Well, that's not the case. And we talked last time about why that's not the case. Uh, 2.7, as I mentioned, has Adam formed from the dust to the ground, and then God breathes into him the breath of life. We're going to expand on that today. And then in 2.9, there's God creating trees. And then in 2.19, there's the the Lord uh, bringing forth certain land animals. Um, And at first glance, that seems to be a contradiction. But it can be resolved if you look at the translation process and what the words actually mean, what those Hebrew words mean and how they're translated into English. And so we talked about the fact that uh, the Hebrew word yatsar for formed, uh, the Hebrew tense of that word is determined by context. It's the same word yatsar for formed, and it's the same word yatsar for had formed. And the only way you know how to translate it into English is by the context. And some of our English translations translated formed, in particular NASB and uh, King James, and some translated had formed, NIV and ESV. Uh, But it seems clear to me from the context, if we read Genesis chapter 1, that it has to be had formed. And one of the interesting things about the Legacy Standard Bible is it very extensively follows the NASB with certain exceptions. And this is one of those exceptions. In the Legacy Standard Bible, they've changed it to change from the NASB from formed to had formed. So the animals, God had formed the animals, and then he brings them to uh, Adam to name. And so there's no 
chronology problem as long as you translate Yatsar's head form there, which is a perfectly legitimate way to translate that from Hebrew to English, and we talked about that last time. And then I mentioned that William Tyndall, the very first man to translate uh, the Bible from the original languages to English, he translated that, uh, that passage in 219 as had formed. So at the very beginning, the very first English translation had it as had formed. So it's not new. It's not that this is a, a new thing. We need to change it to had formed. This is how the very first English Bible had it. Okay, so uh, to, yes, go ahead. Does that mean the planting of the garden also prior to Adam and Eve. So, so um, we have, no, so the way that we have the, uh, the sequence in, in Genesis chapter 2 is you have Adam created, then you have the garden planted, and then you have Adam put into the garden. And so there's some specific trees. We'll talk about that today. That's really today's lesson, uh, the fact that he makes specific trees to put in that garden. And that's what Genesis 2 is talking about. He, he makes a garden for, for Adam. Yeah. Okay, um, so uh, as an overview, we've got uh, Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3 is a, a broad overview of creation, and God says it's very good at the end. Uh, we've got the fact that the Bible is not a book about the cosmos or the earth. Uh, the Bible is a book about God and man, and especially about God's plan of redemption of mankind. And then the primary purpose of Genesis 2 and 3 is to lay the foundation for the gospel. Uh, why is it that, um, that this wonderful creation of a good and loving God, we can look around us and we see that evil exists and man endures pain and troubles and calamity? Why is that? Well, of course, we're going to find out in Genesis chapter 3 why that is. Uh, but we've got to lay the foundation here. And then we've got uh, Genesis uh, chapter 2, starting in verse 4 is kind of a zooming in on day six. And we're gonna, that's what we're primarily going to talk about today. So that's what we talked about last time. So that's a long introduction, uh, but I think that is important to understand that background before we go into the details of uh, the scripture of what, what God says about the, the details of his creation of man and his initial interactions with man. So... Uh, that's the Garden of Eden. That's what we're going to do today. So we're going to, as I mentioned before, we're doing this uh, Genesis chapter two in three parts. Last time we did this kind of overview. This time we're going to do we're going to drill down into the details of what the Scripture says about the creation of Adam, the creation of the Garden, and the fact that God put Adam to work right away. Uh, next time we're going to talk about the the one place where God says it's not good during this whole uh, creation process, and the creation of Eve and the institution of marriage. Uh, we'll talk about next week. So there's three sections of scripture that we're going to talk about today. Uh, the first one is the details of the creation of Adam. And so uh, Genesis 4, this is the account. That word account there in English is the translation of the word toledot. Um, the account of the heavens and the earth, the toledot of the heavens and the earth. What came forth from the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day the Lord made earth and heaven. So there's the day, yom, that's the Hebrew word yom. And in this case, it does not mean 24 hours, right? So we talked about that, that it's an expanded semantic field. Yom can mean many things. And the context tells us what yom means in that particular sentence. And in this sentence, in the day that the Lord made, it is some indefinite amount of time in the past. 
uh, in the day the Lord made. And so you'll, you'll sometimes hear people that want to allegorize the Bible say, hey, ha-ha, there's a yom, and it doesn't mean 24 hours. Yes, of course it doesn't, because there's a specific context there. Notice that there's no number there, there's no evening and morning, none of that. Th- those things. It's a sent, it's a use, use of yom as an uh, in, indefinite amount of time in the past. Uh, now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. So this is kind of a setup for what God did on day six to create a garden and put uh, Adam into the garden. But a mist used to rise from the earth and the water, the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. So that's the details of God's creation of Adam. So he had talked about creating man and women in his image in uh, Genesis chapter 1. Now we get some more details about how he did that. And then he makes a garden. Out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So he plants a garden. Now a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It flows around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. The Delam and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon, and it flows around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris. It flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. And so we'll talk about that structure and whether we can identify that in modern Mesopotamia today. Um, And the third part of scripture that we're going to study is, Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it. So he makes man, he plants a garden, he puts him in the garden. Uh, That's the the sequence of events here in Genesis 2. Uh, And it's all day six. Uh, Then the the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. And of course we'll circle back to that in Genesis chapter 3. That will be very important. Out of the ground the Lord God formed or had formed, that's Yatsar, every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. And so I skipped something there. I skipped Genesis 2.18 because we're going to circle back to that next week. Uh, Why it's not good for the man to be alone and uh, what God did about that. That's going to be the focus of next week. Uh, So... Uh, Genesis chapter 2, a more detailed description of day 6. I mentioned this before, but uh, please feel free to ask questions as we go. Don't don't save them to the end because we'll run out of time and I'll forget, you'll forget. uh, So stop me if you have a question. So an overview of what's going on here. The scripture clearly has Adam as the first man, created from the dust of the ground, not from some pre-Adamic ape, but from inanimate dust. Uh, 2, 8, and 9 are not a repeat of 112, but a description of God planting specific trees on day 6 to make a dwelling for Adam. Yes, go ahead. Uh, do you think there's any particular significance to actually naming and describing these rivers other than the fact that from a, maybe a, like a 
humanistic archaeological standpoint now we can tie back to actual Genesis? So it's a good question, and I, I, I don't have a really good answer. I don't know why those particular descriptions are in there, because uh, we're going to talk about it in more detail in a few minutes, but um, the, the scripture clearly tells us that the world that then was was destroyed. So the world from before the flood is gone. And so the fact that they happened to reuse two names, Tigris and Euphrates, those two are reused after... You know, after Noah and his sons come off the, the ark, they start naming things in the area around where they are, and they happen to reuse two of those names. Um, but those are not the same rivers, uh, because that world's gone. Uh, it can't be those same rivers. Um, it's also a false impression that well, somewhere around there, because those rivers are right. Right, that's right, and so that causes some confusion. Although it, it shouldn't, if we if we take the whole counsel of Scripture of God's Word, He has told us in another place in His Word that the world that then was was destroyed by the flood, and so it's not there. That world is completely gone. Um, and so you know, and we'll, when we get to the flood, I'll, I'll we'll talk about some geology. We'll get into some geology, and there there are thousands of feet of sedimentary rock that were laid down by the flood all over the entire world. And so the, the topography of the surface of the world that was then is completely gone. There, there's nothing there that, that could be recognizable. Now, where, where would a description of something like that come from? Well, these I talked about at the very beginning the fact that these toledots are, they, they look suspiciously like um, sets of, documents or information that that has been transmitted over history and so uh, we'll talk about this a little bit more when we get to Genesis 4 and 5 that it, it, it sure looks like these are family documents and that there was at least an oral tradition that was handed down from Adam to his descendants about how things were in the garden now Genesis, there's absolutely no doubt, was written by Moses. The scripture testifies to the fact that it was written by Moses. And it was written by Moses after Mount Sinai, in the, in the, before they went into the uh, promised land. So it was written many, 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 many centuries, more than a millennium, after the events. And the Holy Spirit moved Moses to write what he wrote. Uh, but that doesn't preclude the possibility that there were oral traditions that had been passed down from Adam that formed the basis of this structure of Toledots in the Bible. And so therefore, there were eyewitnesses like Adam to what the world looked like before the flood. Adam and all the generations up to Moses, uh, up to Noah. And Noah lived for several hundred years after the flood, and so he could have... Uh, I mean, there were people there, and Shem lived for several hundred years after the flood. So there were people that knew what the world looked like before the flood, that were around after the flood for several hundred years. And that could be a reason why we were, they reused some names of physical structures. They remembered the Tigris River and the Euphrates River that used to flow uh, wherever the Garden of Eden was. Um, and so they used those names. 
for the new rivers, but it's not the same rivers. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the reason that I we come <clears throat> I come to that conclusion and, and many others as well is the way the scripture talks about the fact that the world that was before the flood was destroyed, it was wiped out, um, and also from a scientific evaluation of what the world looks like now, and especially when we get there, I'll, I'll show you the geology. It, it's it's more than a mile in most places. There's more than a mile of sedimentary rock, and that rock, uh, you can do analysis and figure out how it was laid down, and it was laid down by water. Those sedimentary rocks. There, there's there's difference in what. Uh, a sedimentary layer of rock looks like if it's laid down by water or not laid down by water. In other words, it's laid down because it uh, settled out of the air. But settled out of water has there's distinct characteristics. And those geological layers are sedimentary rock laid down by water. And they're in all over the world a mile deep. And so it, it takes... Uh, it takes an enormous amount of geological work to do that, and if if you if you uh, if you have layers like that laid down, then where did all that uh, where did all the stuff come from to make that sediment? Well, it came from the flood, from the flood scouring the earth that was, in order to make mud, make all the sedimentary particles that could settle out of the the, the water, and so. When we when we observe the physical world that we see today, it is consistent with a world that was destroyed down to the fine grains of sand, and then precipitated out of water. And so that's why I come to that, to that conclusion. One, because that's what the scripture says that the world was destroyed, and so that still leaves some latitude. What does what does destroyed mean? There's a little bit of latitude there, uh, what destroyed me. But uh, when we get to the description of the flood, uh, the, the description of the flood says the water covered the high mountains. Um, and so that means that the water was around the entire earth. And if you, if you do a hydrologic analysis of what would happen, and you can do a computer simulation of that, what would happen if you had the entire earth covered with water, what would happen to tides, for example? Uh, we can model that with, with a computer. And what you get when you have the globe completely covered by water and no continents to break uh, the tides and currents is you get extreme tides and currents. You get lots of hydrologic action. Uh, in other words, it would not be tranquil the flood water would be raging uh, because of the moon, because of the, uh, the tides from the moon, and because there would be no continents to break up uh, for, the, for the tide to break against, uh, you get very enormous hydrologic work. And so the, the flood waters would have, applying normal physical principles of water and gravity, would have scoured the earth. So that's why I come to that conclusion. And so we'll go into a lot of details of that when we get to 6, 7, and 8. Um, but 
that in a nutshell is, is why I come to that conclusion. So a little bit early for that, that lesson. No problem. Yeah, yeah. and so th- there's a co- couple other places in Genesis where they do that, things that were like one thing and they're not like that in, in, a, uh, in, in the present when Moses is writing it. For example, there's a place in the scripture where uh, it talks about Sodom and Gomorrah as if they're still there. And when Moses is writing Genesis, Sodom and Gomorrah are not still there. But there's a description in Genesis later on where Moses says, as you go towards Sodom and Gomorrah, well, Sodom and Gomorrah are not there uh, when he's writing. Um, and so that's a, that's a, that comes up more than once uh, in, in the scriptures, is that there are, uh, there are obviously accounts in Genesis of the way things were before things were destroyed. In particular, the pre-flood world, we get this description here in Genesis 2 of these rivers and on all the, the gold and going around the land of Cush and all these things. And the, obviously that's not the way anymore. And, and I'll, I'll, when I'll, I'll get to it in a few slides, that's particularly that one river, Gihon, that that's, starts at the Garden of Eden and goes around the land of Cush. The land of Cush, that, that Hebrew word is used over and over and over again in the New Testament, and it's Ethiopia. In fact, it's inter- used interchangeably in the scripture. Ethiopia, sometimes it's actually translated Ethiopia. Um, and there's no way for a river to get from Mesopotamia to Ethiopia in the way the world is right now. Um, and so it's obviously a description of some world that no longer exists. So uh, continuing along, um, so hey, notice he puts him to work. Um, he puts Adam to work right away to cultivate, which is, means kind of to tend, the Hebrew word abad, and to keep which means care for and shamar the garden. So to, to abide and shamar the garden, to keep and to tend, to cultivate and keep, or to tend and care for the garden. He's Adam's put to work. Uh, he's, he's allowed to eat of any of the trees. He's given this big wide latitude to eat of all the trees, but he can't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Um, he previously created the animals. Now he brings them to Adam. Note that Adam does not have to track them down. God brings them to him to name. Uh, so I, just, I put this quote in there from Spurgeon. Uh, man was not originally made to mourn. He was made to rejoice. The Garden of Eden was his place of happy abode. And as long as he continued in obedience to God, nothing grew in that garden that could cause him sorrow. So that's Charles Spurgeon talking about the Garden of Eden. So let's, uh, we've got uh, not very much time. So uh, let's, uh, let's drill down into the scripture. So uh, verse 7, Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. So some details about God creating man. So in chapter 1, verses 26 to 28, we saw God say, Let us make Asa, man in our image, according to our likeness. God created bara, man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. That's what we get in Genesis 1. Now in Genesis 2, we get some description about Specifically, how did God make this man from the dust of the ground and then breathe life? So in Genesis 2, we see more of the special care God took with these two unique creatures. First with Adam, then with Eve. We'll we'll get to Eve next week. Uh, So the dust of the ground here. So uh, dust is in Hebrew is afar. Uh, It comes from the ground, which in Hebrew is Adamah. Um, and so that sounds like Adam, and, uh, which is made from this ground. 
Uh, and so this is one of many Hebrew word plays. So there's a Hebrew word play there between the word for ground and the word and the name that Adam is given uh, here in the text. And there's, there's others, and I'll, I'll point out some others as we get to them. But there's definitely Hebrew word plays there. There's meaning to this name, uh, Adam, um, and the, the word play with the Hebrew word for ground. And, the, and it specifically says that the dust that he's made for is the dust of the ground, Adamah. Okay. Um, so then God breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. Uh, this is another feature of creation of man that distinguishes him from the animals. We don't get any of this about God breathing the breath of nos- life into the nostrils of the animals, just people. Uh, the initial forming of the dust, the material elements, did not form the life of the man, notice. Uh, presumably neither did forming him into the biological structure. So he made him into a, you know, something that looked like a person, had all the form of a person, but uh, he wasn't really, he didn't, he, didn't have, he didn't become a living being until this additional step of God breathing uh, into his nostrils the breath of life. Uh, not till he specifically breathed into him does Adam become a living being. And that's something we don't see with the creation of animals. Uh, and this is also another huge problem for any attempt to reconcile molecules to man evolution with scripture. Because evolution teaches that man evolved from living creatures. And the scripture teaches that man was made from non-living matter. Uh, that's a difference. And, and, and if, if, you, we, if we read this scriptures as, um, as imparting propositional truth, and we apply the uh, standard methods of hermeneutics, we have men created from inanimate matter by God and breathing into him. And he's not, he's not coming from a living creature, but from non-living matter. And that's a big difference. Uh, then we get to verse 8, the Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so Genesis 2 here is further expanding on Genesis 1 by elaborating on the personal care that God took for his creatures that he made in his image. He made him a garden, a special place for him to live. So he plants this garden in Eden. And so the Hebrew word for garden is gan, uh, the Septuagint. The Septuagint, of course, is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And so if you recall, the reason for that was Hebrew was becoming a dead language. Um, After the uh, captivity in in Babylon and the return, uh, Hebrew... The scriptures were in Hebrew, uh, but most of the people um, were increasingly didn't understand Hebrew, and, and the common language by the time of Jesus was Aramaic, the spoken language. And so Hebrew it was because the, there was a fear that Hebrew was becoming a dead language. In order for people to be able to understand the scriptures, we need to put it into a more common language. And so the scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, was translated into Greek. And we call this the Septuagint because 70 scholars did it. This is before the time of Christ. And the Septuagint renders this word, uh, paradisos, paradisos. Um, and that's where we get the, the, the English word paradise from. Um, so that's the Garden of Eden, paradise. Um, uh, the word Eden means delight. The Hebrew word Eden means delight. 
Um, verse 9 then expands on verse 8, explaining what God did to plant the garden. So it says he planted a garden, and then verse 9 tells us exactly what he did to plant that garden. He caused all these trees to grow. He made trees with delicious fruits. Uh, the variety, based on the way the Hebrew is written here, would be tremendous, because the phrase translated into English is every tree. The Holy Spirit uses the emphatic kol etz. Um, so etz is trees, meaning the whole of trees. So uh, all the trees uh, in that garden. Um, then we have a vav disjunctive. And so I mentioned vav disjunctives in uh, Genesis 1. So Genesis 1-2 is a vav disjunctive. Remember that? We had the, uh, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void. That's a vav disjunctive. Uh, um, vav and then tohu bohu, uh, uh, formless and void. And a vav disjunctive is a pause in the timeline to describe things as they were at the time, not as a, a, another time step, but to describe things. And that's what this is here, uh, to describe these two mysterious trees. So there's a pause in the narrative to, to focus and emphasize on these two trees, uh, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And of course, that'll become very important when we study Genesis chapter 3. Uh, and then there's this description of rivers, which we have uh, already discussed quite a bit. Uh, the rivers flew, and so a river flowed out of the Garden of Eden. A river, single river. And from there it divided and became four. So a single river, which is not named, flows out of the Garden of Eden, and then divides into four. And we get the names of the four rivers that it divides into after it flows out of the Garden of Eden. The first is Pishon, the second is Gihon, the third is Tigris, and the fourth is Euphrates. And so um, this is um, different than rivers today. We do not see this happening. We don't see one big river splitting into four rivers. We don't see that, yeah. One place where we do see that is in deltas. So we see one river kind of peter out at the ocean into a delta. Uh, but this is saying that one river became four rivers, and then those rivers wandered around. Because we get a description of where this Gihon River goes all around this land of Cush. And so we don't see this. We don't see this. One river splits into four, and then those rivers are big rivers in and of themselves going all different places. We see the opposite. opposite. Yeah, that's right. You see tributaries of smaller river going into a bigger river. We do not see a big river uh, forking out into four big rivers that then go uh, over... Uh, hill and dale. Um, this is not what we see in, in our world today. Uh, so this this case, we have one river splitting into four. Many people are confused by this uh, use of the Tigris um, uh, and the Euphrates, uh, which in Hebrew don't sound anything like Tigris and Euphrates. Uh, Kidekel and Parat are the Hebrew uh, for those two rivers. Um, I don't know how we got to English Tigris and Euphrates out of that. Um, anyway, uh, they're definitely not the modern rivers. We talked about this. Mesopotamia does not have one river splitting into four. We don't see that. We don't see in archaeological digs or geological digs anything that looks like one river splitting into four. Um, also, the river mentioned in 213 cannot possibly flow from modern Mesopotamia and flow around Ethiopia. Uh, there's no way to get there from here. Yeah. Uh, do you think that's explained that the 
the water comes from the innards of the earth, just like when the flood came, it came from the innards of the earth. So it would be origin was not from some it, it, coming down some high mountain. It was actually coming from the inside of the earth. Yeah, it could be. And uh, there's a lot of speculation about that uh, because uh, in Genesis 2, we see that there was no rain on the earth. And um, in Genesis 7, 8, when we talk about the flood, we'll see that there's rain. And so I have seen many people write that that rain for the flood was the first time it ever rained. That before that, you had rain from springs, you had rain coming up out of the ground, you never had rain fall out of the sky. And that's why a rainbow was such a spectacular thing. It's because there never had been rain, so there never had been a rainbow, and that was the first rainbow. I don't know about that. Uh, I don't know about that. Uh, but th- this description of it, of the river coming out of the Garden of Eden does lend itself to the, the fact this may have been spring water that came up out of the ground rather than water, rain, rain water running out of the mouth. So it could be. It could be. Uh, okay. So uh, then we proceed with the narrative. We continue with the narrative. And uh, God puts the man into the garden. So the Lord God took the man, took, takes Adam, and puts him in the garden. So this is an action of God. And he puts him there for a purpose. So notice there, there's a purpose, and there's work to be done before the fall. So the fact that you have to go to work is not because of the fall, unfortunately. So, uh, yeah, so work it was invented before the fall. Um, it got significantly nastier after the fall, as we'll see. Um, but he was put into the garden by God to cultivate and keep it, to tend and and care for it. Um, the Lord God commanded the man, so he, he now he gives him a command, saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely. So a very positive command. You can eat of all these trees. I've made all these trees, a uh, tremendous variety of trees. You can eat of all the trees. Uh, but, but, there's one negative command. But, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Uh, so notice it's the Lord God, it's Yahweh Elohim, and so it's his covenant name and his name as the creator of the universe. Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God, places the man in the garden he had so carefully prepared for him. Uh, so we notice, of course, that before the fall, man was not to be idle. He was not just supposed to lie around in this garden. Uh, he was supposed to work. Uh, but so far the work would have been pleasurable. Uh, it wouldn't have been uh, a, a, the kind of burden that it became, which we'll see uh, in Genesis chapter 3. So, And then, of course, he's given this one negative command, which is embedded in the permission to eat freely. So he's given permission to eat freely, but... And so there's this one negative command. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat on pain of death. Okay. Um, and then we get the last action of day six. So, um, and this has become controversial, and we'll talk about this too. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed or had formed. Yatsar um, can be translated in English either as formed or had formed. I think it's correct to say had formed. Had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them. Notice brought them. God brought them. Adam didn't have to go track them down brought them to the man to see what he would call them, and whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. 
The man gave names to the, all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. So, what are the, what, what, for what purpose did God bring all these animals to Adam? Uh, why does he parade this, you know, this line of animals past Adam to see what he'll name them? Well, we can, I mean, we can, we can discern uh, what the purposes most likely were. It doesn't say specifically, but uh, one of the purposes is probably to reinforce Adam's delegated authority of the rest of creation. So Genesis one twenty eight, we see that he's given dominion over the rest of creation, and specifically dominion over all the creatures. Uh, God specifically says that in Genesis one twenty eight, and in in all these cultures. Um, going back as far as we know, to name something is a statement of authority over that thing. And so this is kind of a, an act of showing Adam his authority or, or um, showing to Adam that he has authority over these animals, to bring them, for God to bring them to him so he can name them. <clears throat> so another purpose is, and we'll see this more specifically when we get to, to next week's lesson, is to show Adam the fact that he was different in kind from the rest of creation. And so we'll see when we, when we study next week that none of these animals were a suitable companion to him, uh, to show him that, that none of these animals could ever serve as a physical, emotional, intellectual, or spiritual companion. Uh, it will take God creating Eve in his image, so somebody else, the only possible suitable helper is someone else made in God's image. And we'll see that next week when we get to Genesis 2, 21 to 23. So God was showing Adam that. Hey, here's all the rest of the creatures, and you can see, Adam, that these are not suitable helpers for you. Um, And then he makes a suitable helper. We'll see next week. Okay. Um, So, was the sixth day, is is a 24-hour day enough time to do all that? How could he possibly have named, you know, how many species of animals do we have today? Like uh, 10 million or something like that. How could he have named 10 million animals uh, in one 24-hour day? Not possible. Um, So there are some things to notice from the narrative that make it so that this was a feasible thing to do. First of all, as I mentioned, God brought the animals. Adam didn't have to go look for them. They, They paraded past Adam. So there was no need to expend time finding and capturing them. Second, the number of created kinds was much smaller than the number of today's species. Um, I may get into a discussion in in a succeeding week about where we get the English word species from. Uh, we, we actually get the English word species from the Latin Vulgate translation of the Bible. That's where that word comes from. Because when uh, Jerome wrote the Vulgate, and he wrote, uh, he was translating Genesis chapter one. Um, he he, tre- he, he uh, translated the um, the the Hebrew word min, which is kind, used in Genesis chapter one. He translated that in two ways, two different ways in Latin. One was he translated using the word species. And the other was the Latin word genus. Both of them are in the Vulgate. But that Latin word species, Jerome used for the biblical word men 
Hebrew word that we, we use is kind today. And so there is a conflation there going back to the Vulgate. However, the modern scientific definition of a species is not what the biblical kind is talking about. Um, the biblical kinds, and we'll talk about this quite extensively when we talk about the ark and how the animals fit on the ark. Um, there was a dog kind, there was a cat kind, there was, there was not on the ark, for example, a chihuahua and a great dane and every single kind of dog that you see, dog breed. Uh, all, all that is, is genetic variation that was in the original dog kind. Um, and the same thing when God first created animals that would be parading past, uh, past Adam. There were kinds of animals like dogs and cats, but there weren't, you know, he didn't, he didn't have to name every single different breed of dog that we have today, for example. <clears throat> then... Uh, the list of, of animals that Adam had to name was far from exhaustive. It wasn't all the animals. So uh, scripture tells us that he named the cattle or livestock, behema in Hebrew, and the birds of the air, uf hashameim, and the beasts of the field, hayat hasadah. And so there were specific animals that he named, but that's not all of them. That's, that leaves out a whole bunch of animals. There's no indication that Adam named any of the fish, for example, or any other sea creature. So the, the, God didn't have a whale flop up on land and flop by Adam. So that's a lot of different kinds of things that he didn't name. Nothing in the sea. It also doesn't include creeping things like insects or arachnids or reptiles. Those are classified in the Bible as creeping things. And there's no indication here that Adam named any of those. And, uh, you know, a majority of the species that we have today on Earth are insects. Um, and so none of those are, are things that Adam had to name on uh, day six. Um, so combining these facts, that created kinds are broader than species and that only a small subset of all created kinds were named by Adam, on day six there were probably only a few thousand animals involved in most. And we'll get to a, a more detailed um, uh, talk through this when we get to the ark and how they could fit on the ark. So even if we assume Adam had to name as many as, say, 2,500 kinds of animals, if he took five seconds per kind and took a five-minute break every hour, he could have completed the task in less than four hours. So um, not doesn't sound like fun, but he could have done it in four hours uh, as the animals went past. That one, and that one, and that one, and that one. Parading by over the period of four hours, five-minute break every hour. He gets it done in less than four hours. Um, and so this hardly seems like an impossible task, uh, even for people today. And remember, Adam's stamina and memory, unlike ours, has not been affected, had not been affected by generations of accumulated genetic defects since the fall. So we'll talk about this also. When we get to uh, Genesis 10 and 11, I'll get into genetics, and I'll get into population genetics, and I'll give you some... Um, I won't try to give you a, a master's degree class in genetics, but I'll, I will talk about genetics and what we know of human genetics and population genetics and 
absolute facts that uh, every generation adds 300 new point, gen point mutations to the human genome, for example. Every generation, 300 new point mutations. Uh, the human genome is falling apart. It's getting worse. It's going down. It's not going up. Uh, we're getting more genetic diseases, uh, not less. Um, and so Adam and Eve had no genetic defects, especially before the fall. They had no genetic defects. Um, and so they... <laughs> We, we need to we need to stop thinking of of, peop, of people in the past as less than us. It's it's acts, it's it's the the opposite. What, what we know from human genetics is that we are much worse off than our ancient ancestors were in terms of genetics. Yeah, yeah. We'll talk about uh, some more in genetics when we talk about lifespans. Uh, lifespans being nine hundred years, and now they're not. Um, and the, the effects that are known today of what a population bottleneck does to a genome. So when you take a population and bottleneck it down from probably millions down to eight people at the time of the ark, uh, that's a genetic catastrophe. Uh, and so um, it, that, that's almost certain to cause things like decreasing lifespans uh, from 900 years down to 120 years. Um, so, yes, so there, there are lots of things that we know from modern genetics that were not known previously um, that are very consistent with what we see in the Bible. And so that, that shouldn't surprise us as followers of Christ that as science catches up, learns new things, um, that those new things that we learn are consistent with what God has always revealed in Scripture. And we'll talk about some of those things as we go through the rest of Genesis 1 to 11, that, that modern science um, really confirms what we read in Scripture. I mean, Scripture uh, is self-attesting. And so um, we, we don't say that modern science proves that the Scripture is true. The Scripture is true because the Scripture is the Word of God, and therefore it's true. Uh, but what we see is modern science... Um, is confirming and attesting what we already know from Scripture. Um, these the, uh, Some things that had been a mystery for a long time. Uh, we don't understand why it is. Why did, you know, why did lifespans fall from 900 years before the flood and now they're 120 years? And uh, There is a really good genetic explanation for why that should be uh, now that we know about population genetics. Um, okay, so, and we'll get into that eventually. Um, so, um, what we learned today. Uh, we've got a few minutes left for questions. So we learned about God creating Adam. We learned about God creating a garden, a special place for him to live, and taking great care to do so. And we learned about God putting him to work. We also learned that he gave him uh, 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 all the trees to eat, but one tree that he was not supposed to eat from, which will become very important. Um, okay, we have a few minutes left for questions. So uh, this is a consistent theme of federal headship in the Bible, and so it's the same um, reason why uh, Paul explains in Romans that in one man all died and in one man all come alive. And so we're all in Adam, we're all fallen in Adam. When Adam sins, when we get to Genesis chapter 3, uh, 
then every single person that's born from Adam's line then is born with a sin nature. Um, and so the same concept says that um, Abraham, so this is the story of the Melchizedek, who is the priest of uh, Salem, the king of Salem, um, which is Jerusalem, becomes Jerusalem. Um, and Abraham gives him a tenth of the plunder. So the, the whole story is the, the, there's, a, there's a battle, uh, there's four kings, and Abraham takes his uh, army and he beats the four kings and he gets some plunder and he gives a tenth of the plunder to Melchizedek and so the, the point in Hebrews is that uh, this priesthood of Melchizedek was greater than the priesthood of Aaron uh, and the priesthood of Melchizedek is, is what uh, uh, Jesus is said to have and the priesthood of Aaron is the Levitical priesthood and Levi is a descendant of Abraham and so Abraham gives the tenth to Melchizedek, and these all the Levitical priests are descendants of Abraham, and so therefore, in a certain sense, Abraham, as the federal head of those who were descended from Abraham, gave the tenth, and so they all gave the tenth. And this is the idea of, of kind of this uh, federal headship that is applied to Adam, and is also in this case applied to Abraham. Good question. We, we don't know, uh, there's no description of what he did, but... Um, he, he certainly would have been clever enough to make tools, um, and so he could have made uh, tools to cultivate the, the ground. Uh, he, he could have done weeding and pruning and those sort of things. Um, but there's no, we don't have any, any specific description of what he did, but he was obviously doing some work to tend and keep this garden. Uh, we don't know the exact nature of that work, um, but it wasn't a it wasn't the kind of burden that work became after the fall because we'll see uh, God curses uh, Satan and he curses Adam and Eve and he curses the ground we'll see is he'll, he'll curse the ground and it brings up thorns and thistles and by the sweat of your brow you'll eat from um, that that all happens at the fall before that you don't have that you don't have the curse of the ground but there was some sense in which he was keeping and tending this garden. Um, so, yeah, clearing away brush and things like that. I don't, I don't know. Go ahead. So, yeah, so, and Paul makes this point later uh, in the New Testament that uh, Adam is, is taken from, or Eve is taken from Adam. So, so she, God takes a rib from Adam and forms Eve out of that rib. And so he's already breathed the breath of life into Adam. Then he makes Eve from Adam, right? And then Adam and Eve have Cain and Abel and Seth. So where, where do Cain and Abel and Seth get a soul from? It, it's, it's part of the reproductive process after that. Um, that, that. That's part of being a human being and being descended from Adam and Eve is we have a soul. And so there's no description in, in the Bible about God, um, you know, going through some process of popping a soul into each, each baby uh, or anything like that. Um, you know, there, there are theological discussions about how that happens. Uh, yeah, go ahead, Dick, go ahead. There, there's still a kind of a mysterious part of this that we don't exactly understand, but we, we went through the things, it, Gabe just went through the things that make us, that distinguish us as being in the image of God, how we are different from the animals, for example. Um, and that, 
not, those things don't um, don't necessarily mean just the soul. Uh, that way. All right, and that will have to be the last word because we've run out of time. So let me uh, let me close this with a with a word of prayer.